This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Vinigala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is David Gordon. He is a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama, an institution dedicated to promoting the principles of liberty, and he is the editor of the Mises Review. He has contributed to scholarly publications such as Analysis, International Philosophical Quarterly, the Journal of Libertarian Studies, the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, Social Philosophy and Policy, and Econ Journal Watch. He's also been published in the Orange County Register, The American Conservative, and The Freeman. He's written books like The Philosophical Origins of Austrian Economics and Resurrecting Marx, The Analytical Analytical Marxists on Freedom, Exploitation, and Justice. So I'd like to thank David Gordon for joining us today. He's done a lot of great work for the freedom movement, and he's written plenty of great reviews and articles. So thank you, David Gordon, for joining us. Oh, thank you, Anand, and thanks for all the nice things you said about me. It's very kind of you. So would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about how you got into the libertarian movement? Uh, well, I had actually uh, come across the uh, what later became uh, libertarianism when I was in junior high. I used to go to a bookstore in Hollywood, uh, which is near where I live, called Poor Richard's Bookshop. And I read uh, quite a bit of Mises and Rothbard at that time. I read uh, Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State when it came out very late in 1962, and I also read uh, Human Action and other works by by both of them. And I didn't, although I was converted to what Rothbard said in 62, I actually didn't meet uh, Rothbard until 1979. I sent uh, Mises a letter in 1967, which he responded to, but I didn't meet Rothbard till 1979. I uh, went to a conference in uh, June 1979 at the Cato Institute, run by the Cato Institute, was in Eugene, Oregon, and uh, I met the uh, I'd met Rothbard a few months previously, but I talked about Rothbard and his great friends, uh, Ralph Rako and Ronald Hamaway. And uh, as a result of that conference, I was offered a job at the Cato Institute, and I worked there from uh, in 1979, 1980. So that was how I got to know uh, uh, Murray Rothbard. It was really my introduction to the libertarian movement. Excellent. Would you like to explain to our listeners what libertarianism is? Because some of my listeners might not know what it is. But oh, Yes, well, uh, libertarianism, uh, as I understand, of course, there, there are different sorts of libertarians, different views, but libertarians believe in the free market that uh, we think that uh, all uh, institutions should be private. There, there are some libertarians who might not want who allow a minimal state, but 
libertarians think everything should be organized by people who have property rights cooperating on the free market. And it's uh, the basic principle, it's called the non-aggression principle, that you only uh, justify using force in response to aggression against your rights. So if you don't think people have welfare rights, for example, you wouldn't think that uh, you, you wouldn't think that people should be able to uh, compel others to aid the poor to do other things that even if they're desirable would violate their uh, libertarian rights to compel them to do that's good actually you mentioned Murray Rothbard he was in some ways, the founder of the modern American libertarian movement. So would you like to explain a bit about Rothbard, his history, and what contributions he made to the movement for our listeners, oh, please? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yes, well, Rothbard, I got to know him very well, you know, for 17 years that I, I knew him. You see, he had uh, been a student at, at Columbia University, he majored in economics and statistics, and he met uh, in around 1948, 49, he met Ludwig von Mises, the great Austrian economist, and he became a student in Mises' famous seminar at New York University. So uh, what Rothbard did was to combine the Austrian free market economics with the uh, contributions of the 19th century American libertarian anarchists such as Benjamin Tucker, Lysander, Spooner. So he really uh, combined political theory and economics for a new synthesis. He was very learned in a great many different fields, such as history, history of economic thought, uh, pretty much everything he would have read material on. He made contributions both in uh, political theory and economics, economic theory, economic history. He was really probably the most uh, prolific and important of the libertarian thinkers of the 20th century. Excellent. I mean, he wrote books like Man, Economy, and State, which you mentioned, but also For a New Liberty, which was very influential to my own intellectual development. Another book which he wrote called The Ethics of Liberty, which focuses more on why Rothbard believes natural law is the proper foundation for an effective libertarian political theory. And he also wrote a lot of movie reviews and articles in the past. He even wrote an article called The Anatomy of the State, which basically emphasizes that there are two ways of operating in the world. One is by cooperating with either, each other voluntarily. Another is exploiting others by initiating force and, like, getting a gang to do that, that's how the state is formed, that's what a state is in the end. Oh, oh yeah, yes, that's, that's uh, entirely right. And one thing I think is very important that he, he uh, felt that many intellectuals play the role, in his opinion, of uh, supporters of the state. Uh, I mean, if you, say, go to uh, courses at most universities in uh, political science or political philosophy or economics, you won't be taught that the state is a gang of predators who are exploiting the 
rest of the people, you'll be given some sort of uh, ideological justification for the state. And he thought that that was very important, that intellectuals, he's very critical of most intellectuals for their role in defending the state and being, in effect, a, a priestly class supporting the the state predators in uh, in exploiting people. And which, which brings me to another point, because a lot of people think that the state's force is in fact a good thing and that you need it to order society, otherwise you'll have a bunch of people raping and murdering each other, as Thomas Hobbes and other political theorists imagine that if there is no state to force people to behave, or in liberal analyses, if there is no state to force people to be generous, to to behave well, otherwise people will be racist, will rape each other, murder each other, steal from each other. I can just go on. Oh, oh yes, well, <coughs> excuse me, this has struck me as an odd <laughs> argument in that it says, well, people are basically can't be trusted. They're going to be very violent against each other. We need the state to keep everybody in line, but why are the people in the state supposed to be immune from these tendencies? If people are that bad, why should we think that the ones who are controlling the state are better? It would be like saying, uh, well, we have all these murderers around, people who are violent and rapists, so let's appoint one violent murderer rapist to take charge and make sure everybody else is good. That wouldn't seem like a very cogent way of arguing. Yeah. Then again, I tend to acknowledge that Hobbes doesn't necessarily claim that the king is more moral. He just happens to be better at force than the rest of the people. Oh, yes. Well, you see, in Hobbes' idea is that everybody surrenders his arms to the king or the state. What doesn't have to be a, a monarch, but it's very, I think Hobbes thought that was the most desirable form. So everybody would surrender the uh, their arms to the, the king, who would then keep order, supposed to keep order. But then the question would be, why should we think that the king would do that rather than just exploit people for his own benefits? Uh, if we ha- and if we had to take the assumption, which I don't think would be right, that people are in this very bad <coughs> state by themselves, why should we think that the, what results from their surrendering arms to one person is going to be any better? I remember... Murray Rothbard used to say in his characteristic point, he'd say, Ah, what's so wrong with the state of nature? And I think the basic uh, problem, though, with looking at things from a Hobbesian perspective is why should we take for granted that people are really that bad? Why can't people cooperate peacefully without some sort of armed guards? compelling us to do so, it would seem like that's very much underestimating the abilities of people to solve their disputes peacefully. 
Which brings me to another point, because I hear people use the Christian doctrine of original sin, that man is inherently sinful by nature as a justification for why we need the government, because if man's left to himself, he will be so sinful and degenerate, and basically we'll go back to the times before the flood. Oh, well, I mean, of course, how uh, one interprets that doctrine would would vary, but basically, as I understand it, the doctrine of original sin says that uh, as a result of the Adam fall, that people no or no longer are guaranteed the conditions they had in the Garden of Eden. It doesn't postulate any uh, particular level of evil that people are going to be prone to. It just says you know, you don't have what you had before because of this lapse. I know there are various theological interpretations of that, but supposing, though, you took one of these worse interpretations that, well, you know, people are really just going to be very bad. That would be something like Hobbes' point of view, such a more secularized form. You would still have the question, why is the state supposed to help us out? Just from the fact that we're in a bad condition doesn't, uh, doesn't mean that. It doesn't imply that having uh, some state institutions will improve things. Maybe if you took that doctrine of original sin the way you suggest, I would just suggest we're going to be in a bad way and there's nothing we can do about it. It wouldn't be justification for the state. But then again, people will say if the state is not doing violence, then people will take the law into their own hands and they will excessively use force. Never mind that the state uses excessive force in so many cases, but we'll get that, that get to that in another discussion. Oh, well, if they said that, you see, that would just be raising the same argument again. We could say, suppose that was true, we would still have the question, why would what the state is doing be an improvement or better? Because it's so much more reasoned, especially since the Enlightenment, where there was this emphasis on rationality in government and everything. Whereas if you're a vigilante justice, you'll probably beat up or mutilate a criminal who might, in fact, deserve jail time. Uh, well, I think there, uh, again, we would have the assumption that, uh, Say, which I think is quite right, there's a more reasonable way of settling disputes than uh, an unreasonable way that we shouldn't resort to violence, but we should try to settle our disputes reasonably you know, in a, a uh, law-governed fashion rather than just say, if I do something against you, you would just take out your gun and start shooting at me. That seems perfectly right, but again, we have this basic assumption which needs to be questioned. Why should we think that people without the state would be less rational or more prone to violence than the state would be? Again, what seems to be a problem with the various lines of argument you're suggesting in favor of the state is they just 
postulate some bad state of affairs, say uh, original sin uh, leading to uh, people being bad or an assumption that people aren't rational in some way, and then suggesting the state is somehow better. We need the state because people are evil or people are irrational. People will not settle their disputes peacefully, so we need the state. Now, if you look at uh, Locke's Second Treatise on Government, uh, Locke mentions this point you mentioned that, that you mentioned that the people in the state of nature will enforce the law of nature just in a partial way, so we need some sort of impartial agency to do it. But if that, if you accept that, why couldn't people just uh, set up uh, private protection agencies or private justice associations that would do that? Why would we need a monopoly coercive organization to do that? So I think we have to be careful from jumping from the dichotomy of rationality versus irrationality to equating that with the state versus people acting on their own. They're two very different things, I would think. I agree. And oh, good. And I want to say something. I wonder how libertarianism relates to classical liberalism, which was the historical, I think, version of libertarianism in Europe and America. I wonder how much libertarianism is an outgrowth of outgrowth of that, while also how many differences there are between modern libertarianism and the historical classical liberalism. Well, yes, well, I think classical liberalism is a broader movement, uh, usually taken beginning in the 18th century. That was a movement directed against the state-controlled economy, the mercantilist system. We have the great uh, classical liberals in England and France. And libertarianism was really an outgrowth of that kind of a more radical uh, type of of classical liberalism, say, whereas the classical liberals would say, well, we've got to limit the power of the government. We should have a basically free market economy. The, the libertarians say, well, why do we we want to really limit the government if not do away with it altogether and have a completely private economy? So it's a more radical version of classical liberalism. An anarcho-capitalism, which was founded by Murray Rothbard in its American variant, basically says there should be no state in the first place, not for anything, not even for protection, which is generally my position, actually. But yes, yes, that's right. That's right. There were, there were a few people before Rothbard who had the idea of private protection agencies. For example, uh, the... Uh, Belgian economist uh, Gustave de Molinari in the 19th century suggested that, although he modified his position at various times. But Rothbard was the first major economist who really suggested that. So it's a it's a quite a bit more radical view. Now today there are some people who are basically pro free market but don't like 
Rothbard or other people's more radical version. Sometimes they'll call themselves classical liberals to differentiate themselves from uh, from libertarians. One thinker they appeal to a great deal is uh, Friedrich Hayek, who was uh, one of the students of Ludwig von Mises, uh, probably the foremost uh, 20th century classical liberal. <laughs> Yeah, do you think there are some like differences between the English versions of classical liberalism and the French versions? Because from my observations, I think the English societies in Britain and America tended to be better in terms of actual liberty than a lot of French societies. But then again, the French versions of liberalism in some ways are more close to what we as American libertarians tend to believe. So what do you think accounts for some of the differences and what are some of the similarities? Oh, well, that's, that's a very interesting... Uh, comparison, because that was one that Hayek stressed a great deal, and uh, Rothbard also did this. Now, from Hayek's point of view, the English classical liberals were had a greater sense of the institutional realities of society. They were, in his view, not very dogmatic. They would tend to say, how should principles of liberalism be applied to concrete situations. Uh, Hayek thought that the French classical liberals tended to be too dogmatic. They would just try to deduce everything from first principles. Rothbard agreed with Hayek on this polarization, but he thought that the French were better, that it was better to have a systematic type of thinking and draw more radical conclusions rather than to uh, compromise and try to deal with this situation. One thing as to what would account for the difference, maybe uh, perhaps along the lines you suggest, that if the English society was more liberal, people, the people there wouldn't be as dissatisfied with it, and they would think, well, we need to have a lot of improvements. We can ba- do this basically by reforming the institutions we have rather than overthrowing them, whereas the French liberals were very often faced with regimes that were strongly opposed to liberty, so they would tend to be, think we need a more radical uprooting of, of matters, that we can't just reform the state just by gradual changes, but we need something more substantial. Which brings me to the French Revolution, which Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises had very favorable views on. This is the French Revolution of 1789, which was in many ways a radical revolution. And Murray Rothbard argued that some of the more unsavory aspects of the revolution came from its particular historical situation because compared to the American Revolution, where the Americans had the Atlantic Ocean to protect them from England in some way, the French were kind of landlocked by powers that opposed the revolution in the first place. So hence some of the radicalism arises not just from the responses to the institutions, but also to surrounding elements of nationalism, statism, and more. 
And so this is why I've been a little more sympathetic to the French Revolution, notwithstanding its more problematic aspects than most libertarians and conservatives in America seem to have been. Oh, oh yes, yes, I, I know you, you've taken that position, and uh, certainly Rothbard would agree with you, especially in uh, some of his uh, earlier essays. I think it is certainly the case that the... Uh, European powers were trying to overthrow the French regime, so that you know, we have they they had uh, started war against trying to against the French revolutionary regime, so that did lead to uh, more repressive measures, perhaps than would have otherwise been the case. But we we do have to take account, though, that they did have very repressive measures oh yes under the uh, under the jacobins and also some of the earlier uh, ones also so, i mean it, it wasn't it wasn't a libertarian paradise i agree by any, any means i agree and then again, I want to come to Ron Paul, who is one of the most important libertarian figures, and many of the people who are libertarians have supported him. So what do you think is his significance? Because even though he lost his two runs for the president presidency, and then he's moved into a more quiet phase, so to speak, quiet compared to the campaigns of 2008 and 2012, what do you think is his lasting significance, if any? Oh, I think he's really one of the most significant 20th century political figures because he's really a very principled person. He was very devoted to the economics of Mises and Rothbard, and especially he did a lot on the gold standard criticism of the Federal Reserve System. And he also believed in, like Rothbard, in a non-interventionist foreign policy, so he was very much opposed to all the wars and aggressive behavior that the American government is engaged in in the, over the 20th century. So I think his significance is really to show the wide appeal of a uh, Rothbardian standpoint. And he, he's a very uh, personally appealing uh, person, he's very popular with younger people. So I think he really shows how one can convey the libertarian message to vast masses of people is a very encouraging person. I, I, I know him. He, he's a very kind person, very nice person. I have an extremely high opinion of him. I agree. Um, before I came around to Ron Paul, I used to think of him as RuPaul because Mark Levin, this radio host, basically called him that. RuPaul is a flashy celebrity, and Ron Paul in many ways is the opposite of flashy. And then again, this was because of his foreign policy, which I interpreted as American blaming and weakness. But then again, I came around to him, and then later I observed that a lot of his supporters were in fact battle-hardened military soldiers and killers. And personally, this has led me to my stance on how we are to reach military personnel with the ideas of liberty, because I have no bones with calling what is calling certain actions taken by soldiers to be murder, which... But then again, I notice that a lot of military people are more sympathetic to libertarianism than, for say, cops, because... Look, think about it. Ron Paul got a lot of military donations, 
and so did Obama, and both of them campaigned on ending a lot of America's useless wars. Oh, oh yes, I think this is a very good point. I think many of the soldiers realize they're being sent into a battle or being exposed to danger for causes that really aren't in America's interest, so they're naturally inclined to look favorably on those who who uh, question these programs and say, why do we need to go into all these countries and overthrow their regimes when it seems to lead to so much trouble in the world? Yeah, and then Ron Paul himself served in the military, and then some of the most famous libertarians I've known, like Adam Kokish, have had military backgrounds, so that's saying something. Oh, yes, yes, so I hadn't known he had a military background. I think he served in either the Iraq or Afghanistan wars initially, Adam Kokish. Oh, oh, I see. Oh, yes, I know know the name. I don't know that much about him, but I do know the name. But then again, people have said Ron Paul isn't that significant because he's too conservative, he's not cosmopolitan enough, and for the record, I do think a more cosmopolitan approach, not necessarily as reason or Cato, approaches it, but a generally cosmopolitan approach like something like Ludwig von Mises or even Murray Rothbard to his own limited extent is a good thing. But then again, I think Ron Paul was very much popular with young people who are not necessarily the image of social conservatives, even though Ron Paul himself is a social conservative. And so I think that's something to consider. Oh, oh yes, yes. Well, I think... When you speak of cosmopolitanism, I think certainly if you mean openness to different cultures, you're being uh, aware of the contributions that uh, various cultures and peoples have made. I think uh, not being, uh, say, anti-foreigner and xenophobic. I think Ron Paul would certainly be cosmopolitan in that sense that he's. I think he's he's interested in all sorts of different people, and he's friendly to everyone. I mean, he's not uh, hes not uh, someone who just said, well, America is the only significant country. We shouldn't be interested in foreign ideas or uh, people from other countries. After all, uh, Mises was Austrian and was not a Native American. He's a follower of Mises, so uh, you know. I think people sometimes will attack the Mises Institute. They'll say, "Well, the Mises Institute is giving dog whistles to the alt right," but we're not like that at all. I mean, the uh, Mises and Rothbard were the two people. The Mises Institute followers were both Jewish, after all. You know, we're we're hardly uh, we're hardly And when I want to talk about cosmopolitanism, I also mean openness to other experiences and other alternative lifestyles. And I'm not necessarily a dyed-in-the-wool libertine cosmopolitan, but I do have some favorability to libertinism insofar as it has its own beneficial aspects. Because as Thaddeus Russell, a historian who wrote A Renegade History of the United States, demonstrates, a fair amount of libertinism was responsible for some of the reasons we enjoy personal freedoms today. Like prostitutes have some have some responsibility in the sexual freedoms we enjoy today. And 
also even the mafia had some responsibility for making the culture a little more fun. Oh, oh yes, that's, that's an interesting thesis. Yes, I've met, I met Thaddeus Russell. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's certainly the case that uh, movements or uh, types of behavior that are wrong can have good consequences, I think. I wouldn't show they're really all right, though, morally all right. You know, I have to take account of their consequences. I mean, similarly, one could say uh, there have been various inventions that have come about through war, that war has helped develop various types of technology, but we wouldn't have a good argument, well, this shows that war is a good thing because it's led to these various good developments. But I think the basic point I think we would want to make as libertarians is that there's a distinction between aggression instead of violating someone's right and what moral or immoral behavior and that we only have the right to use force against people who are violating rights, even if people are acting in a way we consider wrong, that doesn't by itself suffice to justify trying to stop them forcibly or doing things against them. Yeah, and a lot of Christians and even many leftists have argued that that's not a good point because a lot of vices have bad consequences, not just for the people who do the vices, but for other cases and for other people, like drug addiction might take a toll on the whole family and sexual infidelities and stuff like that will have a negative consequence for the whole families and nations. And then alcoholism can lead to drunk driving and driving under the influence and all that stuff. Therefore, we should severely regulate or in some cases ban. I don't ban these vices. I don't think many people say we should ban them. But a lot of them definitely don't favor libertarianism because of our distinction between crime and vice. Oh Yes, well, you see, I think the problem with that sort of argument is... Uh, Supposing that these various vices do have bad consequences, we need more in the argument to say, well, because there are bad consequences, we ought to use force to prevent these or do something about them. If you believe in libertarian rights, you hold that people have certain rights not dependent on the consequences of that. For example, supposing you own some very valuable painting, like some rare artwork, you it's your property. You would have the right to destroy it, even though that would have very bad consequences for people who wanted to see it or study the work. There's a distinction between rights and consequences, so even if these vices did lead to bad consequences, it wouldn't. we would need more to justify taking action against them. And then uh, another point would come up there is just accepting the argument on its own terms. We have a parallel point 
to the one that came up when we were talking earlier about justifications for the state based on saying people are very bad, so we need the state to keep them in line, whereas the line I was suggesting was, well, if that's true, why should we think the state would make things better? So here again, if these vices have bad consequences, why would we think that state intervention would have good consequences? Why would it just, why should we think state intervention would just wipe out the bad consequences without leading to bad results uh, that would be even worse than letting people alone. And I'm also thinking of like how bad the effects of some vices can be because, for example, the case of adultery, which I don't necessarily think is a good thing, for example, in American marriages, it might have a more devastating effect than it might have in, say, a French marriage or a marriage in a different country where infidelity is a little more tolerated, so to speak. Not that it condones infidelity, but there is also that to consider. And then there are people who have had drugs in their lives in the past, but who haven't had terrible lives, or even people who have had problems with alcoholism, but who moved on. So there's also that to consider, which... I don't think it's the most foolproof argument against criminalizing vices, but I think it's something worth considering. Oh, yes, yes, I think that sounds quite plausible. I mean, sometimes uh, the bad consequences aren't as bad as the ones that the ones you want to suppress the vice suggest. I mean, sometimes, uh, sometimes people, we can live with a lot of these vices after all. And also the case of sex work, which Ron Paul supported the legalization of because freedom all the board, though he supports it in a federalistic context, a.k.a. leave it to the states to decide. In American cases where prostitution is illegal, that can cause a lot of problems, and part of that is due to the fact that prostitution is illegal, whereas in areas where prostitution is legal or decriminalized, you don't see as many problems, as far as I know. And in yeah, fact, yeah, many yeah. prostitutes choose their choose their career voluntarily, though there, are, though there are serious cases of trafficking which should be addressed, I don't necessarily think it's as pandemic as some people are saying. And for many people, prostitution is a choice. Whether or not we agree with the choice is up for debate, but that's something to consider. And I definitely think you have the right to do what you want to do with the body, provided you are not aggressing against anybody. So prostitution, voluntary prostitution, falls into that ca category. Oh, yeah, yes, I think that's, that's a very good point. We would have similar points on the drug war, that the drug prohibition generally makes things worse than having the drugs available on the market. Agreed. And I want to go into some of the finer points of the libertarian movement. As I followed the history of this movement, I noticed that Rothbard had a falling out with the Koch brothers and that he had strong disagreements with them, how they did things. So would you like to explain to my listeners what some of that was about? Oh, oh yes. Well, uh, Rothbard with the, and Charles Koch were founders of the Cato Institute in the... Um, late 1970s, mid to late 1970s, and the Cato Institute was founded really to promote Rothbardian ideas, 
But later on, Rothbard felt that the Institute was deviating from what he considered the correct libertarian point of view. He thought that they were making too many compromises to try to get a wider audience. And this was particularly, in his view, evident in the uh, campaign, presidential campaign 1980, where Ed Clark ran on the Libertarian Party ticket, and his <clears throat> vice presidential candidate was David Koch, and Koch was the VP candidate because by being a candidate, he could spend as much money as he liked on the, on the campaign, whereas if donors to campaigns were limited. So uh, Rothbard felt that they, they were, the campaign was emphasizing uh, what they call low-tax liberalism rather than hard-line libertarianism. He was very critical of the campaign. And as a result of that, uh, Charles Koch and Rothbard had a very big falling out that remained, that, that never was healed. They were all at, at odds down to the time of Murray Rothbard's death in January 1995, and the bad feeling has continued since those days between the people allied to the Charles Koch's interests and uh, the pro-Rothbard. I should say one point, it isn't very often emphasized or mentioned in the discussion of these matters, is that people say, well, Charles and David Koch. Uh, David Koch, although he's given a lot of money to the movement, really was not the central person. It was always Charles Koch was the one in charge making the decisions. Uh, David Koch was something of a fifth wheel, so he's not really one of the major people in spite of his vast wealth and prominence of his name. And as for my personal opinion of the Koch brothers, I generally tend to be more sympathetic to them than, say, the left wing would be. But at the same time, I do have some problems with them. I do tend to take the Rothbardian view that they are in some ways compromisers compared with the Rothbardians. Oh, oh yeah, yes, I think one point one does have to emphasize, I think sometimes they've been unfairly criticized for giving people say, well, they're giving money to groups, so... As if the left wing does never never did that. Yes, yes. but I do think, as Rothbard points out, there is some danger if there are one or two people who were the main financial supporters of a movement, including libertarianism. There is a tendency for people to cater to those financial supporters and do what they want, and it gives them a great deal of informal control over the the movement they're sponsoring. So supposing, for example, you were a libertarian, but you thought that uh, you didn't agree with some of the programs Charles Koch was favoring or wanted to emphasize other things, you might 
be reluctant to pursue those lines of inquiry simply because the money was coming from Charles Cole. So not that it's he's violating anybody's rights by spending his money as he wants, but it is something that uh, needs to be taken into account. And I think if someone is sometimes is that well off, he's one of he and his brother among the richest people in the world, and I think if you combine their two fortunes, they rank very high up on the uh, world's most wealthy list. So I think there is a tendency for them not to encounter much criticism of what they say by their supporters. And when, say, Rothbard did a review of some of something Charles Koch had written. He'd be very, he was very critical. I think, uh, uh, from what Rothbard suggested, uh, Charles Koch was was really surprised that anyone would treat his work in a critical way. Yeah, and then I want to talk about Rothbard's criticisms of Reagan. A lot of conservatives didn't like that for obvious reasons because Reagan is a hero to them. But Rothbard, during the 1980s, he had very negative articles about Reagan, that Reagan was in many ways a fraudster, a Teflon guy who had no real sense at all. He criticized Reagan for being militaristic, for being very inconsistent in how he did his economics, for ramping up the whole Christian right in some way, which Rothbard, he allied with the Christian right later on, but in the 1980s, I I feel he was very critical of them for a good reason. And then again, Rothbard viewed Reagan as an example of how libertarian, the movement, the movement would be damaged because of his bad example. How do you feel about that in retrospect? Oh, I think uh, Rothbard was right, as he was in so many things. If we see, for example, uh, Reagan campaigned on uh, reducing government spending, but in fact uh, government spending increased substantially under Reagan. He didn't cut back the uh, the welfare programs in the way he said he, it was. He would, the best he could do would be to say, well, the growth in these programs perhaps wasn't as great as it would have been under a more uh, liberal democratic president, but he he wasn't the. Sometimes he would call himself a libertarian, but he certainly wasn't. And he uh, he intervened militarily in Nicaragua and other places. And the he whole Iran Contra thing, which Oliver North yes. was involved in somehow. Oliver oh, North oh, is yes. now going to be the president of NRA. Yes, yes, that's right. I mean it's interesting how these figures from that time uh, stay around. You know, think of Reagan reminded me of a story. Remember when uh, Reagan was uh, almost assassinated? He was shot in the chest. I was going to visit my friend uh, Bob Nozick the next, I think the day after. You see, Reagan had said, I forgot to duck. And Nozick said to me, what did he say that for? If he ducked, he would have been killed.
And one of the reasons I don't like Reagan in retrospect was he was responsible for the National Minimum Drinking Act, if that's what it's called, of 1984, which basically made all the states put their alcohol drinking age at 21, else you would lose your 10% of your state highway funds. And I think that was a really pernicious thing. And even those who underage drink have some kind of unnecessary moral baggage around it. And I'm not necessarily condoning alcoholism or binge drinking or some of the more pernicious cultural practices that arose around the time of this 1980s drinking act. But I think that was a really bad thing that Reagan did. And let's not get into the drug war, which has had a lot of bad consequences, violent consequences, death, jailing, and we can go on and on. Oh, oh yes, I that, that, those are very good points you make. I hadn't recalled the uh, drinking act, but one thing that, uh, comes to mind there, and I think is very a very bad idea if you believe that limiting the power of the federal government is essential to liberty, is that one way the federal government can trespass on the rights of the state is instead of saying to them, uh, you must do such and such, whereas they could challenge that and say, according to the Constitution, you don't have the authority to tell us that. They can say, unless you do such and such, as, as in your case of the Drinking Act, unless you raise the age limit to 21, you won't get various federal money. So they use uh, threats of withholding funds as a way to force the state to conform to... It's basically a threat. Yes. Yes, it's saying uh, you don't have to do this, but you're going to lose a lot of money if you don't do it. And which is really a pernicious thing. I mean, I'm not saying the government should fund other governments, but I think that the alcohol age has a lot of pernicious effects, not just because I think it is led to a lot of binge drinking problems that we see on campuses worldwide and nationwide, I mean nationwide more specifically. But I also tend to think it goes hand in hand with a lot of assumptions about adulthood and teenagers that I don't think are necessarily right or helpful. I mean, the idea is being that teenagers are immature and they can't be trusted. I mean, fair point there, maybe immature, and I'm sure a lot of that is can be attributed to public schooling and a lot of issues, but I don't think that's a real good reason to restrict freedoms, in my humble opinion. Oh, oh yes, it does seem odd to say uh, you're old enough to vote when you're 18. But and old enough old to kill enough. in warfare. Yes, yes, not to get by a drink, though. And I think it's better that we would follow the leads of other nations in Europe, and we can criticize Europe for a lot of things they do, and the European nations did have a lot of atrocities within their within their borders, but I think their decisions to have the alcohol ages at ages lower than 21 is the right move, and I would definitely support any move that went to lowering the drinking age, even if it's nationwide and it's not the most federalist thing, but I would support such a move. Oh, yes, yes, well, I'll drink to that, although I'm not a drinker. Okay. You can drink grape juice or ginger ale or whatever drink of your choice. <laughs> Sounds good. And then I 
I wanted to mention George Mason University, which has produced a lot of libertarian and conservative and classical liberal academics. I think Walter Williams was associated with that, and so was Peter Betke. Is that how I pronounce the name? Uh, yes, I think Betke. Betke. Yeah. So I wonder what yeah. are some of the differences between that and, say, for example, the Mises Institute when it comes to Austrian economics and stuff like that? Oh, well, we have a rather a friendly rivalry with them. Uh, they, they, uh, some of the people at George Mason promote Austrian economics, like Pete Betke, but they combine Austrian economics with other approaches, for example, the uh, public choice, economics of James McCann and Gordon Tullock. So the Austrians there tend to be somewhat less hard-line, if one can use that term, than the people at the Mises Institute, such as uh, Joe Salerno and Peter Klein. We give a kind of a, a straight Misesian, Rothbardian approach, and the George Mason people are rather less so. And some of the economists that uh, George Mason, like Tyler Cowen and Brian Campbell, all their free market supporters are not supporters of the Austrian school. So that would be another difference. If you go to the George Mason program, you can certainly study Austrian economics, but you wouldn't be getting that from all the professors. Uh, you could certainly, if you weren't an Austrian uh, economist in your orientation, you could certainly go to the George Mason program and take other lines of approach. So they are more eclectic than we are at the Mises Institute. Thank you so much. And we never got to defining what Austrian economics is for our listeners. What are some of the principles behind that? Uh, well, uh, Austrian economics was uh, originated from uh, the thought of Karl Menger in, in, uh, with one of the three people, along with Leon Malraux and William Jevons, who supported the subjective theory of value, whereas in contrast to 19th century economics, which said that the value is really determined by cost of production. The subjective economists said no the value, the prices depend on the subjective utilities that people have, their various goods. And uh, this was line of thought was applied to uh, capital theory by... Uh, Menger's follower, Eugen von Bomberg, and also by Mises in monetary theory. It applies a subjectivist view uh, consistently to analyze the uh, free economy, and it's um, in practice, economists who support that tend to be very much in favor of the free market, although economics as such as a descriptive rather than normative science, it, the conclusions of the school show that the free market is really the only way to organize a large society so that people can cooperate, cooperate productively. The Mises in his famous 1920 argument showed that 
uh, a large-scale socialist society uh, is impossible because a socialist economy would be unable to calculate that, would be unable to, ter- to determine how to allocate resources to various lines of production in a rational way because lacking a price system, it wouldn't be able to tell what were better and worse uses of resources. So it's a really consistent pro-free market approach to economics. Yes, but you don't have to be a libertarian, have to be an Austrian economist to be a libertarian, but a lot... Uh, but in many cases, being a libertarian will often correlate to following Austrian economics, at least as far as yes. America is concerned. Yes, yes, I think that's exactly correct, yes. How does this contrast to, say, for example, the Chicago School of Economists, where people like Milton Friedman come from, and where also, I think, Thomas Sowell comes from as well? Oh, yes, well, the Chicago, the Chicago School is different from the... Austrians in that they tend to, uh, they're, they're different in method. The Austrian approach is a more uh, a priori one where you try to reason things out from first principles, whereas the Chicago pe- people stress more uh, coming up with models and testing them empirically. And the Chicago approach really is emphasizes what's called pure competition, where there are certain conditions that were elaborated by Frank Knight and other economists, where you have competition takes place where there's small, a large number of small firms in an industry, and one can show using certain models that resources are distributed in the most efficient way under this uh, pure, perfect competition. And the Chicago approach has been either to say the real economy is closer to perfect competition than people might think, or to say where it isn't, we should intervene to to secure perfect competition, whereas the Austrian approach is more the competition is what results on the free market. It doesn't require particular kinds of market structure along the lines of Chicago. And then in monetary theory, they're very different in, say, that Friedman wanted, uh, was opposed, at least for most of his career, was opposed to the gold standard and wanted a paper money standard that would be expanded according to a fixed, the money supply would be expanded according to a fixed rule, where Whereas the Austrian approach is favored a gold standard primarily. Thank you for the helpful distinctions. I think they will be very instructive to my listeners. So, who are some of your favorite philosophers in history besides the libertarian philosophers like Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises? I personally like Plato, even though his Republic is kind of proto communist in some readings, but I like his symposium a lot. And I admire Aristotle, and then you have David Hume, and then John Locke, for example. And I even have a liking to reading Hobbes, even though I strongly disagree with the solutions. I think it's sort of entertaining 
to see how fear animates philosopher, and then I love Friedrich Nietzsche. Oh, oh yes, well, I, I think uh, you have a good list there. I mean, I like uh, most of the classical philosophers, all the ones you mentioned would certainly rank up there. And I noticed, it's interesting, you like uh, the symposium, and then you'd earlier stress uh, the importance of lowering the drinking age. Of course, drinking features very prominently in the symposium, so I see I see a, I see a tend I see a common thread here. Yeah. Plus, symposium deals with the erotic stuff, and that's a yeah. fascinating topic for me. So, that's one of the reasons I'm drawn to it. Yes, but as I say, I like most of the classical philosophers. Uh, you know, I like of the current philosophers. You're close to current. Uh, Tom Nagel's very good. Of course, I like uh, Robert Nozick, was my friend for 20 years, I think, very highly. Of him, Saul Kripke's very good. You know, kind of the, I'm pretty, David Lewis, I'm pretty standard analytic in the ones I like. Nice. And who are some of the best voices in libertarianism today that you think are doing a good job in spreading the message of liberty besides Ron Paul? Oh, well, I think we have, you know, the ones at the Mises Institute are very good. Lou Rockwell, uh, Joe Salerno, Peter Klein, uh, my colleagues are, are very good. Uh, uh, there, there are a lot of good uh, libertarian thinkers around, but I like the ones at the Mises Institute the best. Yeah, I like Walter Block. He was one of the most famous libertarian minds. He wrote a book called Defending the Undefendable, where he defends some of the people like pimps and like the deniers of academic freedom who are in fact doing libertarian things. And he argues that libertarian principles apply even in these unsavory cases. And that oh, was oh, a very yes. shocking to the day, but I think it's a very fine point to make. Oh, yeah, yes, Walter, I think very highly. I've <coughs> known him a long time. Yes. And then I like Robert Higgs. He wrote Crisis and Leviathan, and he wrote plenty of other good books and articles arguing against the warfare state and against the state in general. And he sometimes ruffled a lot of feathers, especially when it comes to his analyses of World War II history. But I think he's one of the most courageous voices ever. And his Facebook, which I follow, is some of the is one of the best profiles ever, I think. And... I appreciate Hans-Hermann Hoppe, though he was a bit more controversial. And then I like Stefan Kinsella because of his analysis of law from a libertarian perspective, which I find very useful, and I like to read some of that stuff, especially as I might be considering going to law school. I might have to revisit Stefan Kinsella's stuff. And I want to go to discuss the case of children's rights and adolescents and teenagers' rights, because Murray Rothbard also touched on that to some degree, and... He wrote an essay called Kidlib, and then he wrote a chapter in The Ethics of Liberty, which is addressed in this very thing. And his arguments have been controversial even among libertarians, but would you like to explain them to our listeners, please? Oh, oh yes. Well, he took, uh, as you say, rather controversial view, more or less, that uh, when uh, parents could didn't have legally enforceable obligations to children. I mean, they couldn't aggress against them, but they really didn't have to take care of them. And also, once children wanted to leave, they couldn't be stopped. They would be 
on their own. I think they're very interesting arguments. I'm not sure I have a well-thought-out position on that one point. I would differ. I don't agree with the idea of homesteading children. I don't think you can homestead people. That seems yeah. not a good way of looking at the at things. And then I've read some of the responses to Rothbard's arguments, and they were like, oh, Rothbard believes you can sell children on the market, oy vey, and then Rothbard believes you can throw out your kid to die on the streets. But when I think of Rothbard's analysis, I don't necessarily think of parents throwing their kids on the streets or selling their children to other parents. I think more in the case of those parents who might not be as openly involved in their children's lives or their teenagers' lives and who still do kind of care for their children because they're children, of course, but who might hold a more permissive approach, maybe, who might hold a more hands-off approach in parenting. That's how I tend to interpret Rothbard's views in the most charitable way I can think. Uh, yes, I think that's a very good way of looking at things. I think we, we would have to avoid the view that some people have. They will, they'll say, well, uh, certain parents aren't giving their children as good an upbringing as one could imagine. The Joneses aren't raising their children like the Harriets are raising their children. Yes, yes. So, I mean, some people might say, well, then the state is justified in stepping in and doing something, but why should we require that parents to, to be the best possible, assuming we can give some sort of objective account of that, which is questionable, but I mean, what if you're just doing an acceptable job? Why does that justify interfering? I think the danger there is to say something like, well, children are entitled to the same chance as anyone else, so therefore children have to be raised in equal conditions. That's an idea antithetical to liberty. Yeah. And then again, some idea, some ideas of good parenting are different from other ideas of good parenting, so there are some real differences which I don't think a status solution will help in any way. And I think oh, yeah. Rothbard analyses can work very well in addressing how differing views of parenthood and sh- child raising can operate in a society. Oh, and yes, I think yes, it's very yes, generous yes, in this yes. sense. Yes. So... Do you have any advice for any libertarians who want to get into academia? What are some tips you can give to them? Oh Well, uh, perhaps one idea would be in your field, see if you could co- address some topic that seems to be central to that field and then see if you could come up with a solution to it uh, long libertarian ideas. I think it would be a mistake just to write on whatever you're interested in without reference to the current state of play. But if you can come up with some contribution based on a topic that people in your field consider essential, then I think you'd have a better chance of being effective and attracting attention. And one example of a good scholar who's doing a lot of work in literature and who is a libertarian is Alan Mendenhall. I think he is a lawyer and he is 
a great writer and he's a great libertarian as well. He also has a lot of literary interests, which is something that is appealing to me. I just wanted to name drop there. Oh yes, yes, I know him. Yes, he's a very done some very good work. You might, I think he's a professor at a law school. So if you're interested in going into law, he might be one you want to study with. Excellent. So speaking of like the classical world, before we close, how libertarian, for example, was Athenian democracy? In some ways, it wasn't libertarian, especially if you had the compulsory military service in mind, especially when they killed Socrates. But in some ways, as Roderick T. Long, a scholar, argued, Athenian democracy was very libertarian. And then parts of the Roman Republic were libertarian, as Rothbard argued there was a tradition of Roman private law. Oh yes, yes, I think that's that's right. I mean, one way the Athenian society was rather libertarian was that much of law enforcement was private. If someone committed a crime, the enforce the what would be done to the person would be up to uh, it would be up to the ones who'd been injured to try to take action against that person. We. They, there wasn't, for example, at least in most circumstances, it wasn't a public police force that would uh, try to enforce the law. And I want to bring the question back to democracy because a lot of libertarians have argued, including myself, that democracy is a very unlibertarian thing because it leaves a whole governance to majority rule and often the majority is not always right. But then again, Rothbard is more neutral on the question of democracy. Of course, he supports the abolition of the state, but as for the actual democracy itself, he seems to be mixed on it. In the book Conceived in Liberty, which is his four-volume history of American history from the colonial period up to the revolution, he argues that democracy and liberty, at least in those times, went hand in hand. Whereas Hans-Hermann Hoppe argues that democracy is very antithetical to liberty and that monarchy, for whatever its flaws, is more akin to libertarian principles. Oh, oh, yes. yes. Well, if though you look at the treatment of democracy and power and market, uh, Rothbard is fairly critical. I mean, Hans Hoppe has some interesting arguments. I'm not sure he's right on monarchy being better. I think there are some very serious weaknesses with democracy. But, I mean, with on top of Susie, of course, he regards libertarian anarchism as the best system. But he has, as I say, he has some interesting arguments, and I'm not sure he's right on superiority. Of yeah, especially monarchy. since historically monarchs tended to be just as statist, if not more so, than some real communist leaders of the 20th century. Yes, yes, I think that's, that's a good point. You should try to do an interview with Hans Hoppe. I'm sure that would be very valuable. Is he still with the Mises Institute, by the way? Oh, no, no, he lives in Turkey now. He He's gives, still a senior he fellow, though, right? Yes. Oh, yes, he's distinguished fellow. He has a special rank. He's one of the top person. But he, he doesn't come to our conferences as much as he used to. But he does make appearances. He's very popular with the students. Before I close off, I want to talk about how he's become sort of ubiquitous on online libertarian and alternative right circles because he mentions 
that, like people of alternative lifestyles, have to be physically removed from the society, so to speak. And <laughs> the question is, what does that physical removal entail? I don't think Hobb is arguing for an expulsion or pogrom type thing, far from it, but I know a lot of alternative right followers who tend to view this physical removal in very violent terms. Sometimes you remove your enemies by hanging them from helicopters and then dropping their bodies into the sea, which is what the Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet apparently did with some of his political enemies. Oh, oh yes, well, I think that's not what, as you suggest, not what Hans had on top of had in mind it would be his idea was he was giving a speech to a quite conservative audience and I think what he had in mind was something like what we call today gated community something like yeah if you have or the a covenant community, community which is his term right you you say you don't want people of certain sorts in your community you can exclude them it wouldn't suggest that those people don't have libertarian rights so that it's all right to aggress against those people because they're in a, a group you don't like or group uh, they, uh, or because of their race or other things you might not like about them. It's just suggesting that people can form communities according to their own requirements. I really want to thank you for appearing on the show. I think your comments are really great, and I really felt this was a really good interview. So I want to thank you again for joining us. Oh, well, thank you, Anand. It was very good talking to you, and thank you for your insightful questions and comments. Until next time, this has been The Letter of Liberty, a podcast about literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit wcwp.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.